Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 46, where Tuxmab in lupus. I've got a lot to cover, so let's just get started. The paper that kicked this off is entitled Rituximab as Maintenance Treatment for Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, a Multicenter Observational Study of 147 Patients. The background here is relatively straightforward. We love rituximab in rheumatology. It's a monoclonal antibody against CD20, which is a B-cell marker, and it effectively eliminates those B-cells from circulation. In oversimplified terms, B-cells are the factors of antibodies, and when you're a doctor who treats antibody-mediated diseases, a drug that effectively knocks those factories out while not causing too bad of side effects is an incredibly th- appealing therapy. In lupus in particular, there's been a lot of interest in rituximab. Lupus is clearly a highly immunogenic disease. It's a disease with relatively few great therapies. It's a disease with a lot of morbidity. For that reason, we keep trying to make rituximab happen. Today I'm going to talk about this cohort, but I'm also going to talk about the two randomized controlled trials, which are entitled Explorer and Lunar, that gives a little more data for this question. But for starters, the cohort. To get into this cohort, patients had to have a diagnosis of lupus according to ACR or SLIC criteria, and they had to have received at least one rituximab administration from 2004 to 2016. That's an interesting period of time. That's before the randomized controlled trials and after the randomized controlled trials that showed no clear benefit for this therapy. You do wonder how practice patterns may have been different before and after. It was performed at four centers in the UK and Italy, and it was a retrospective paper. It's unfortunate. Prospective cohort studies are better. You have a little more control over what people are doing, a little more ability to collect the kind of outcome measures that you want. Because not all patients got an actual course of rituximab, some of them would just get a one-off, they broke patients into two groups. You could be a single rituximab course, or you could be the rituximab maintenance group. This is obviously a little bit slippery, because a lot of the time we'll give rituximab a couple times in a month, and that's still technically a single course of rituximab. So to be in the rituximab maintenance group, there had to be four to eight months separating your doses, and you needed to get three of them. Disease activity was assessed using the ECLAM score, European Consensus Lupus Activity Measurement. I actually hadn't heard about this one, so I looked it up. It's pretty similar to a lot of the scores in lupus. You get between 0.5 to 2 points for various manifestations of disease. There's 12 different areas. The scoring system is a little bit complicated, but in short, it's a validated outcome measure in lupus that assesses a broad range of disease manifestations. There's also a physician assessment that was scored as 0 if there's no signs of disease, 1 if there's mild, and 2 if there's severe. In a way, I almost like that better. For a retrospective cohort, I don't know how much I trust these complicated metrics just because physicians aren't very good at coding. I do trust them to say, more or less, this patient's in remission, this patient's kind of active but not too bad, or this patient is really sick. Now, response within these metrics was designated as complete response if you got a physician assessment of 0 or 1, or if your ECLAM was reduced by at least 50% and you had a decrease of your other immunomodulatory therapy by at least 25% from baseline. Partial response was an ECLAM reduction of 25 to 50% and a physician assessment of greater than zero with a reduction of the immunomodulatory therapy of zero to 25%. Anything else was considered a treatment failure. None of this is all unreasonable, but these are all kind of squishy metrics. Patients were stratified into four groups according to disease severity. It was mild, moderate, severe, and drug sparing. This was defined according to the BSR guidelines. The group drug sparing was essentially people with mild to moderate disease, where rituximab was administered with the explicit aim of reducing ongoing immunosuppression. 
The idea being that this was a somewhat different cohort, probably less active disease and more just simmering lupus that we haven't been able to totally move forward with. What did they find in their cohort? Well, as you'd expect, people who are getting rituximab tended to have a lot of prior immunosuppression. The mean number of drugs was around three in pretty much all of the groups. Six months after the first rituximab administration, 45% of patients were in complete remission, 28% in partial remission, and 28.7% experienced treatment failure. The ECLAM score declined from 4 at baseline to 1.9 at 6 months, and the prednisolone dose declined from a mean of 15.4 to 8.45. That sounds good. So over time, you had more people in remission, and you had less steroid for the people that were getting it. Factors that predicted treatment failure were patients who had higher C4 levels and the number of prior immunosuppressive agents. Prior immunosuppressive agents having an odd ratio of 7.77. Not unexpected. People who fail one drug are more likely to fail a subsequent drug. 54% of the group was was treated with rituximab maintenance therapy. Of those, 86% were receiving mean oral prednisone dose of 11, and 46 were receiving an immunosuppressive drug. This was kind of a menagerie of things, mostly mycophenolate though. At the six-month assessment period, 38% were in complete remission, and this proportion increased to 48% by the 24-month assessment. The proportion of patients not taking corticosteroids increased from 14 to 41%. Not bad at all. Now, unfortunately, damage still increased. The mean SLIC score was 1.69 at the time of the first rituximab administration. This increased during follow-up with a mean SLIC score at the last available follow-up of 2.14. So whatever rituximab did, unfortunately, it didn't prevent damage. The authors conclude that although there have been no prospective trials showing superiority of rituximab over placebo, the overall positive response further supports the role of this drug in SLE management. I don't disagree with that conclusion, but I just never think this is the right way to get this sort of information. There's so many problems with using a cohort study like this to assess the efficacy of some type of treatment. Let's go through them. For one, if you look at table one, there were a lot of difference between these groups. People who got rituximab maintenance therapy tended to have a lot more disease duration. They tended to have more skin disease, less renal disease, more mycophenolate use, 84%, more hydroxychloroquine use, etc. They were just a different cohort than the people who got one dose. But more to the point, what about people who got no doses? There's no control group here, so we really have no idea what the natural history of disease in this cohort was. I would assume that the natural history is bad because this is a cohort that has failed therapies and is needing rituximab, but we really have no idea. The second problem is that even though steroids went down, a lot of patients were getting a lot of steroids throughout this trial. This is a huge confounding factor. Had this been a proper trial, we could have specified some sort of tapering regimen, but instead, we don't really know what patients were receiving for most of this. Some of them may have even been getting bolus steroids during these rituximab infusions, For all we know, they were getting a gram every couple months whenever they went into the emergency room with symptoms. Rituximab is also clearly not a first-line therapy, and clearly not a therapy that most physicians are comfortable using, so this is a different cohort of people that are using it. Not to cast aspersions on anyone in this community, but there are some people who are essentially Rituximab true believers. They're convinced that Rituximab works, and I find it hard to believe that this wouldn't, to some degree, impact how they assess patients who they know are getting Rituximab. Similarly, if you tell patients you're going to get this super fancy expensive medicine and give them an infusion every couple months, a lot of patients are going to feel better regardless of whether or not the therapy actually helped them. In a trial like this where the outcomes, where the ECLAM score and physician assessments, you're highly prone to both of those becoming an issue. 
In summary, this is a nice paper if you want to argue with an insurance company, but as far as a physician using this to make clinical decisions, it's just hard for me to trust cohorts to make these kinds of choices. With that, let's talk about the Explorer trial. Explorer was a large, multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial uh, in North America. To get into the trial, you had to have an ACR criteria for SLE, and you had to have active disease at screening. They defined this as greater or equal to one organ system within the British Isles Lupus Assessment, or BILAG. I have spent a lot of time staring at the BILAG score, and let me tell you, this is something else. I have a lot of respect for anyone who has run a lupus trial, and I have a lot of compassion for any study coordinator who has had to fill this thing out. Right now I'm looking at the BILAG 2004. There's over 100 different items, each one scored from 1 to 4, um, and then from that you have to compile a composite index. There's all of these different domains. It is kind of a big mess. On the bright side, it is comprehensive. Hard for me to imagine you're missing too much with a score. But on the not bright side, you can imagine that you're missing a lot of nuance with this. If you're filling out so many different scores, what is a very important thing to one patient, say their skin disease goes from very active to not active at all, could easily be washed out by something that really doesn't matter to them at all. Say they developed a little bit of anemia and their neutrophil count went down. Patients were excluded for severe central nervous system or organ-threatening lupus or any other active conditions requiring significant use of steroids or any recent treatment with a cyclophosphamide or calcineur inhibitor. So they needed to be active and somewhat sick, but they couldn't have anything really terrifying. I think this is actually a good group to study. This is the group that I'm often looking to add a therapy for, and a group for which if I knew rituximab was effective, I would pretty often be reaching for it. 88 patients were ultimately randomized to placebo, and another 169 were randomized to rituximab group, so it was a 1 to 2 ratio. As intended, the patients who entered this trial had a lot of disease at baseline. Without getting too far into the specifics, BILAG A means very active disease, B is pretty active disease, give or take. In the mucocutaneous and musculoskeletal domains, patients in this trial were pretty active. Around half of patients were BILAG A in the mucocutaneous and musculoskeletal systems. So, very active disease and a couple of things that we actually care quite a lot about. What happened when we got to week 52? No major difference. For the primary outcome measure of a major clinical response, the overall response rate was 28% in the placebo group and 29% in the rituximab group. There just did not appear to be any significant difference between therapies. There was some nuance to this. It looks like the major clinical response was a little more likely in the placebo group, but then a partial response was a little more likely in the rituximab group. So perhaps rituximab was pulling some patients out of no response into the I responded a little bit area. More interestingly, actually, is that among African-American and Hispanic group, which is about a third of the patients in the study, there was a statistically significant increase in patients who had this partial response. So that went from 6.3% in the placebo group to 20% in the treatment group. That's the number needed to treat of 14 to get a partial response. That's starting to get into the area where this is an interesting therapy that I would be willing to use in clinic. That's especially true, given that the safety profile was pretty good. Adverse events were similar in the placebo and rituximab groups, 36% versus 38%. Nothing terribly happened to the rituximab people, so overall it was pretty well tolerated. At face value, Explorer was just a negative trial. They used the outcome measure they wanted, they thought it would be a good idea, they effectively gave people rituximab, and they were powered sufficiently to show what I would consider to be a meaningful difference. They didn't see it. In retrospect, I don't think the outcome measure was great, 
It's very confusing. It's enormous. And you can imagine that a real difference for a patient didn't translate into a real difference in the bilag. Another major critique of this trial is that people just got a lot of steroid. Patients came in getting 40 to 45 milligrams, and a lot of them stayed on steroid throughout the duration of the trial. It's entirely possible that had we tapered them off steroids more quickly, a benefit would have emerged. I think it's important to note that the rate of complete remission in this trial was pretty low. Less than a third of people had their symptoms resolved entirely. So if rituximab was going to kick in and save the day, there is plenty of room for it to show a benefit. It's hard for me to tell entirely, but it's also possible that some of these people who had this active disease throughout the trial that never really responded to therapy maybe had more of a damagey sort of thing. Some patients seem to just have active manifestations of disease that really just don't respond to therapy. I know we've all seen lupus patients who have joint pains that kind of come and go, and eventually just sort of decide that it's probably fibromyalgia. All of these complaints aside, it's not like this trial showed nothing. It did show that using a very comprehensive outcome measure and running a proper randomized controlled trial, rituximab created essentially no benefit to patients with lupus. What do you do when your randomized controlled trial for a therapy you really believe in flops? Well, you go and you run another randomized controlled trial. The next trial that I want to talk about is the Lunar Study. Like the Explorer Study, patients got into the trial if they met the ACR criteria for lupus. They're required to have class 3 or class 4 lupus nephritis. So unlike Explorer, they're going to relatively tightly define the people who made it into this trial. They had this specific thing. Patients had to have a renal biopsy within 12 months, which is kind of silly. You'd think that you'd want to have all the people who just got diagnosed. But as it turns out, people had a mean time from diagnosis of about 1.3 months. So it wound up being relatively appropriate. Patients were excluded if they had greater than 50% glomerular sclerosis or interstitial fibrosis, or that they had an estimated GFR that was less than 25. That makes sense to me. They essentially said, if your kidneys are fried and we don't think there's a whole lot of benefit to getting any therapy, we're not going to try out rituximab on you. Patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to get placebo or rituximab. Mycophenolate was started at the same time. It was initiated at a dosage of 1.5 grams today and uptitrated to 3 grams per day by week 4 as tolerated. Patients also got a gram of solimedrol on day 1 and day 3 as therapy for active lupus nephritis. This is all relatively standard, but you can already see the problem emerging here where, just like the Explorer trial, we're giving these patients a lot of therapy up front. It's going to be harder to see a benefit from rituximab if you're also giving them MMF and solumedrol. To be fair to the authors, you didn't really have a choice. You can't withhold what's essentially the standard of care from patients just to see if your experimental new drug works. So you kind of had to run the trial this way, in my opinion. It just means that it's going to be harder to demonstrate any kind of benefit. It just means that it's going to be hard to demonstrate a benefit if the benefit isn't large. The primary endpoint was renal response, which is de defined as complete response, partial response, or no response. Complete response was normalization of the serum creatinine, inactive urine sediment, and a urine protein creatinine ratio less than 0.5. That all makes sense to me. For a partial response, you could have a little bit of active sediment, some red blood cells, and at least a 50% decrease in the urine protein creatinine ratio that went under one. If you didn't meet either of those, you were considered a non-responder. They also had a number of secondary outcome measures. These included my favorite, the BILAG, as well as the FSF36 and a number of serologic parameters. 144 patients were randomized to receive rituximab. Over time, the percentage of the discontinued therapy was larger in the placebo group, 25%, than in the rituximab group, 
That does suggest that perhaps rituximab was helpful, but at the same time, discontinuation of therapy can make it kind of hard to assess outcomes. Baseline characteristics were overall similar. About 70% of patients had lupus nephritis diagnosed within the first two years of randomization. Regarding the primary endpoint, renal response rates at week 52 were not significantly different between groups. P was 0.55. Now, there is some nuance to this. As far as complete response, 30.6% in the placebo, 26.4% in the rituximab. Placebo actually outperformed rituximab. I don't think that's because placebo is better. I think that that's because there's 22 people in the placebo group and 19 in the rituximab group, and there is some randomness to all of these sorts of studies. As far as partial response, that was a little more interesting. There are 15% in the placebo group and 30% in the rituximab group. That's a 15% absolute difference or number needed to treat of about six or seven. That's starting to get into the range where that's a treatment that might interest me. Unfortunately, the trial wasn't powered to detect that difference, and so we had to conclude that it didn't count. Critique number one of this trial is that it therefore may not have been powered to show a benefit that we would actually consider clinically meaningful. Because of that interesting signal in Explorer, where African-American patients seemed to do better on rituximab, they did as pre-specified, but not appropriately powered, subgroup analysis in Lunar as well. What did they find? Well, within African-American patients, 45% in the placebo group, and 70% in the rituximab group responded. That gives you a number needed to treat of four to have a response. To me, that seems like a therapy well worth trying, but again, the trial was not powered to detect that difference, and so we can't be 100% sure that it wasn't due to chance. Now, there were some statistically significant differences in a number of serologic parameters, but I don't think that's very interesting. To me, what matters are the clinical outcomes, and we've mostly already discussed that. As before, rituximab was pretty well tolerated, which is encouraging in case you want to give this on some somewhat shoddy data. In fact, serious adverse events appear to be more frequent in the placebo group. Again, if anything, that may reflect that A, there was a difference between the two, and B, our current outcome measures aren't capturing something important that we'd like to talk about. One important thing that I'd like to talk about, patients were still on a lot of steroids. There was a tapering program and patients wound up being on more steroids than they were supposed to be. Between week 16 and 52, this was around 10 to 12 milligrams of steroid, and there was slightly less in the rituximab group, so maybe it had some small steroid sparing effect. What if we'd followed these patients for longer? Should note that there was this change in the complements and double-strand DNA. Perhaps rituximab was favorably affecting the antibody profile, and had we run the trial for a longer duration, we would have seen something. The trial did suggest this, A significantly fewer number of patients in the rituximab group ultimately required cyclophosphamide for worsening the disease, and more of them went down to that BILAG C-score, which was sustained up to 78 weeks. So perhaps rituximab did have some long-term benefits over getting placebo. How do we bring this all together? Number one, I'm something of a medical conservative. I think that most of our treatments work less well than we think. The flaws in these trials were many, but if rituximab worked really well, I think we would have seen something. Nobody is arguing that the BILAG score is completely useless. In the lunar trial, we may have been missing out on a real benefit, moving patients from no response to partial response, but if rituximab was some kind of panacea for lupus nephritis, we wouldn't have ended the trial with 43% in the rituximab group showing no response whatsoever. At the end of the day, I'm left with a few thoughts. The first is we need to fix our outcome measures in lupus. Running large, expensive trials and putting patients through the process 
when at the end of the day, if it's a negative trial, you're going to say the outcome measured wasn't good enough? Seems silly to me. In the upcoming TULIP trials, one of them was negative, and early indications is that it was because it used an SRI4, and the other one was positive, early indications because it used a BICLA. I'm not going to get into that because I'm sure I will when the trials themselves come out, but that's a problem to me. Trials shouldn't live and die by the quality of the endpoint. They should live and die by the quality of the therapy being offered. My second take-home point is that there does appear to be something here. Though a lot of these results were not statistically significant, it does appear that rituximab bumps the rate of partial response sufficiently that I would consider it clinically meaningful and would be interested in using it, especially among patients who are African-American. Similar results were seen in Explorer, and I can imagine a patient who's an explorer having refractory or frustrating musculoskeletal or cutaneous findings, getting rituximab and doing quite a bit better. I suspect I'll be pretending that they have seronegative RA to get the insurance companies to pay for it. My third thought is that rituximab doesn't work that well. I just painted a somewhat rosy picture of it, but the truth is that there was plenty of space for rituximab to have worked in either of these trials. And last but not least, Please stop running cohort studies on this question. Without blinding, without randomization, without a control group, you're not going to be able to move the needle on whether or not rituximab works a little bit or not very well at all. If we want to use rituximab and lupus, we need to run a proper randomized control trial with the proper primary endpoint and finally answer once and for all whether or not this is a therapy that the FDA should approve and start paying for. Right now, it doesn't seem like they should, but there will be a subset of patients for whom I'm giving rituximab. The last time I did this was last week. In the right clinical setting, especially among patients who are African-American and have active disease or lupus nephritis, class 3 or 4, that you'd like to try to address, it seems reasonable to me to give rituximab. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear feedback, so please follow me at ebroom.com and let me know what you think. Thanks again, and have a great week.